Today I want to share guidance for graduates. And there was a uh, commencement service that took place at, at Yale, and as, a, as the joke goes, uh, the guy who was the speaker broke down an acrostic for the letters of Yale, and he began with, the, the Y stands for youth, and he spoke for 30 minutes about youth. Then he got to A. A represents ambition, and again, he went on for a, a half hour on, on that. Came to L. L represents learning, and again, another 30 minutes on that. And then E, he landed the plane with a half hour on education. And so after the commencement address, a couple of guys were returning their, their caps and gowns, and, and one was heard to say to the other, man, I feel really sorry for my brother. He said, why is that? He goes, that same guy's the commencement speaker next week at his graduation. Oh, Where does he go to school? The Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Well, I have five points today in my message, but I assure you I will not speak a half hour on each point. But today we, we congratulate our graduates, and I want to focus on some practical wisdom that will be helpful to them as they embark on this journey of life. But this advice isn't intended just for graduates. It has an application for all of us, whether pre-graduate or postgraduate. I want you to consider these common sense principles that first appeared in Robert Fulgram's book with the catchy title, All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. And the insights are obvious and yet valuable. And they provide practical tips for getting along well in life. He, he writes, share everything, play fair, don't hit people, Put things back when you, where you found them. Clean up your own mess. Don't take things that aren't yours. Say you're sorry when you hurt somebody. Wash your hands before you eat. Flush. Cookies and cold milk are good for you. When you go out into the world, watch for traffic, hold hands, and stick together. And that sandbox wisdom contains a, a wealth of information that will make any life a better one and properly maintain it in the best of condition. There's really no one better equipped to advise us on life than Solomon, the, the wisest man of, of all time. Early in his life, when he became the king of Judah, he prayed that God would grant him wisdom. And that unselfish request pleased God. And God blessed Solomon with wisdom and additionally with wealth, power, and popularity in his kingdom. I want to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, the, the first verse of the last chapter of that book. Solomon instructs us today, and this is the, the message for graduates. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Some have forgotten the value of the creation, but that neglect goes farther than, than that. There are many who have entirely forgotten about the creator. And Psalm 100 verse 3 says, know that the Lord is God. It is he who has made us. 
and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. If you want to have things together in your life, it begins by putting God first in your life. It will enable you to have poise during the ups and downs, the the peaks and valleys, the, the triumphs and tragedies that come to us all in life. And so I'm going to use that acrostic today. Again, I'm not going to speak a half hour on each of those letters, but five letters that spell out the word poise. If you want wisdom for the best life, then the the P stands for prepare. Prepare for the future and start now to identify your goals in life and to travel toward them. Don't wait to get started. Everything doesn't have to line up perfectly in order to begin stepping in the right direction. And Solomon's writing this book of Ecclesiastes at the end of his life. He's looking back. He has some regrets and he has some things that he's proud of that succeeded. And this is how he sums up his his advice. He says, remember your creator in the days of your youth before the trouble comes in the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. He's saying life gets more increasingly difficult as it goes on. Catch this moment. Don't miss it. Seize this, this time. And then going into the next part of that chapter, Solomon uses a series of metaphors to describe the aging process. And he does it in, in very poetic terms. He said, before the sun and the the light and the moon and the stars grow dim. And as we age, those intellectual powers, the lights of the soul can be diminished. He said, and the clouds return after the rain. And that's just seems like one storm has passed and another storm arrives. And sometimes in that process of aging, you've just gotten out of one health crisis and then uh, another one surfaces. Verse 3, when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop. That's when our, our, our arms and hands shake or tremble. And when we're posture-wise bowed over and, 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 and bent with age. When the grinders cease because they are few. You're losing some teeth and you have dentures. You're looking through the windows and it grows dim. Your, your eyesight is dimming. When the doors to the street are closed, you, I don't think we'll go back out tonight. I, th- I think let's just, let's just stay home. Uh, the sound of grinding fades. And the people rise up at the sound of birds. You may not sleep soundly through the night, but even that bird outside the window can wake you up and you can't get back to sleep. When people are afraid of heights, there's this risk or fear of, of falling. And he says, and of danger in the streets. You become more vulnerable and, and defenseless. When the almond tree blossoms, the almond tree has white blossoms is when your hair grows white. When the, the grasshopper drags itself along, the, the mobility challenges. And when desire is no longer stirred, 
when sexual drive is declining. Then people go to their eternal home and mourners go about the streets. He says, this is what you have to look forward to. All this happens, then you die, you go to heaven, and people have a funeral. So he's, he's looking back on life at the end of life and saying, don't miss it when you're young and active and healthy. Please, you know, be aware of that. Verse 6, he says, remember him before the silver cord is severed, the golden bowl is broken. Uh, before things start to wear out and break down, the wheel is broken at the well and dust returns to the ground it came from. And the spirit returns to God who gave it. There's, there's been a saying that the best time to plant an oak tree was 25 years ago. The second best time is today. And so while we all have regrets in life, we have this moment today and we can't change the past, but we can change the future. Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. Ben Franklin used to ask himself two questions, one at the beginning of the day and, and one at the end of the day. At the beginning of each day, he'd ask, what difference can I make in someone's life today? At the end of the day, he would ask, what difference did I make in somebody's life today? And so prepare, that, that first P, that first letter, God will equip you for the, the tasks he assigned you. And that preparation can begin at a very early age. When I was five years old, I decided I wanted to be a minister when I grew up. My dad was a minister. I would stand at the back door with him after the worship service and shake hands with people as they exited the, the worship area. We have a lot of ministers in my family. My, my, my father, my grandfather, uh, three of my uncles, my brother, my brother-in-law are, are all ministers. I, I think ministry is in my DNA. My, my parents never pushed me toward the ministry. They did offer cash incentives. No, I'm just, just, just kidding. I, I always felt called by God to enter the ministry. And in sixth grade, we wrote papers on what I want to do when I grow up. And I wrote about being a minister as a way of helping others. And that continued on into high school where in speech class, I, I preached sermons for my speeches and helped lead a, a classmate to the Lord through that public speaking class. But when I would take the standard achievement tests to, to determine potential career paths for the first area, I would always take my number two pencil and darken the circle for clergy. And my second choice would always be the darken the circle for agriculture. And at first glance, those two careers might seem to be light years apart, but actually they are much closer than they might appear at first. A farmer cultivates the soil, sows seed, removes weeds, harvests the crop, a minister does the same as a farmer, only with the gospel. In Matthew 13, Jesus said, a farmer went out to sow his seed. 
he told them many things in parables. And then again in Luke chapter 10, verse 2, Jesus used an agricultural analogy. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And the life experiences that we have will serve to prepare us for all the tasks that God will assign us. Our family was in a, a serious car accident when I was a child, and, and that helped make me a more compassionate person to the hurts of others. I, I used to go calling with my dad on, on people in the church, and that made me a more social, confident, outgoing person. I have been a lifelong Cincinnati Reds fan, and that has served me to teach me to be gracious in defeat. And another contributing factor in my decision to enter the ministry was that I had a hard time sitting still and being quiet in church. And I realized that as a minister, I could stand up, walk around, and talk in church. That's right, parents. You thought your, your child just had ADHD. It might be the, the call of God onto their, their lives for vocational ministry. And so God prepares us. He'll use your gifts, your personality, your life experiences to equip you for the tasks he will assign you. Prepare. And then next, obey. Obey the Lord. Uh, surrender your life to Christ. And that decision is more important than where you will live, uh, where you will go to school, what career you will choose, whom you will marry. God's rules are to be obeyed because they're for our protection. If we obey God, then God can, can work in our lives. He, he can change us. Solomon began on track with God. And then he veered off in midlife, got off course. The man who had this untold wealth describes in Ecclesiastes 5 how he found his riches to be meaningless. He had multiple wives, a, a large family, thousands of horses. I, I visited the remains of his stable in Megiddo that still stands today. Solomon, if he were, were living in in our time, would have owned Secretariat in his day. The horse of the century, who 50 years ago, this June 9th, won the Triple Crown with a, a whopping 31-length victory in record time, breaking this 25-year drought since Citation had won the last Triple Crown in 1948. Solomon would own Secretariat. Solomon had the finest food served by gourmet chefs, a, a large park that was a sanctuary for animals, nightly entertainment at the palace, Brian Regan, Jim Gaffigan doing nightly stand-up comedy there for him in the palace, the finest musicians in the land singing and playing at his request. Solomon had no trouble getting tickets to Taylor Swift. He lived a very charmed life. And this is where he got off track. He practiced polygamy. He married foreign wives in order to form political alliances, the original survivor game. 
They took his focus off the one true God. And so he left this noble, youthful, well-intended commitment to God in the rearview mirror for a number of years of his life. Be careful. It can happen to anyone at any time. But the good news is that Solomon returned to fully following God. And he wrote this advice for us near the end of his life. God uses human instruments despite our weaknesses and imperfections. A.W. Tozer said, God can use any cup, even a broken one, as long as it is clean. When our daughter Jennifer was about four years old, I was speaking at a revival at the, the Bethlehem Church of Christ in Winchester, Ohio, where Tom Claiborne was and still is the minister. And while I spoke, Jenny was sitting beside her mom and working on a, a coloring book, which my mom had, had provided. And in my message, I was reading that passage in Romans 7, where the Apostle Paul, in, in autobiographical honesty, states, the things I don't want to do, those are the things I keep doing. And, and the things I want to do, those are the things that I don't do. And Jen looked up from her coloring book and spoke aloud in agreement and said, I know, Daddy. That's not exactly the moment you're looking for a, a hearty amen or any agreement. And, and No one is more acutely aware of my weaknesses than I am. I've never tried to project an attitude of, of having it all together. Instead, I acknowledge the reality of an authentic struggle as I try to live as Christ lived and as I seek myself as one struggler to, to point other co-strugglers in his direction. I, I balance my imperfection with the fact that if we wait until we are morally perfect to serve the Lord, no one ever will serve him. So obey. And God can change anyone who will let him. When I was a, a youth minister, there was a a boy in our high school youth group who was a, a pretty nice kid if he was on his medication. Otherwise, he was loud, unruly, disruptive, and out of control. We were traveling to the Ohio Teens for Christ conference up in Canton. We are driving up Interstate 71, and I was seated in the third row of the, the van. We had a an adult sponsor who was driving. I was hanging out with the kids and talking. And there was a, a young man who was a guest on our, our trip. It was not a regular at our church. And, and suddenly everyone started screaming, Jeff, Jeff, Jeff. I look up and this younger, smaller boy was being choked by the fellow who was not on his medication. And so I'll think about that for a minute. Hit pause and... Uh, you make the call. What, what do you do? I had a split second to respond and save this boy's life. So what did I do? I started choking the guy in front of me and, and broke his choke hold. We went off at the next exit, and I got him out of the van, confronted him, and, and what are you doing? He said something about my mom. I don't care what he said about your mom. You can't kill him for that. And, and so 
Um, he was on probation for a year and couldn't go on any youth activities until he got his medicine all regulated and, and able to come back. And, and, and in time, he went on a mission trip to Haiti, and that became a, a catalytic moment in his life where he began to really change, and he fell in love with serving people and helping those who were less fortunate. And he began working two jobs and saving all the money he could to go back on another trip to Haiti. And he just kept making multiple trips to Haiti. And that was where he found his purpose and identity. And it was a vivid reminder that God can change anyone who will let him. Ray Steadman in the book, Talking to My Father, writes, an old missionary couple have been working in Africa for years and were returning to you know, New York City to retire. And they had no pension. Their health was broken. They were defeated, discouraged, and afraid. They discovered that on this same ship, President Teddy Roosevelt was returning from one of his big game hunting expeditions. No one paid attention to them. All the fanfare was directed toward the president's entourage, and, and the passengers were hoping to catch a glimpse of the, the great man. And as the ship moved across the ocean, the old missionary said to his wife, something's wrong. Why should we have given our lives in faithful service to God in Africa all these many years, and, and no one cares a thing about us? Here this man goes on a, a hunting trip, and Everyone makes such a, a big deal over that. No one gives two hoots about us. Dear, you shouldn't feel that way, his wife said. I can't help it. It doesn't seem right. And when the, the ship docked in New York, a band was waiting to greet the president. The mayor and other dignitaries came out. The newspapers were full of information about the president's arrival. No one noticed this missionary couple. They slipped off the ship found a, a clean flat on the east side, hoping the next day to see what they could do to make a living in the city. And that night, the missionary's spirit was broken. He said, I, I just can't take this. God is not treating us fairly. His wife replied, why don't you go to your bedroom and tell that to the Lord? And so a short time later, he came out from the bedroom, and his expression was completely different. His wife said, well, what happened? He said, the Lord settled it with me. I, I told him how bitter I was that the president should receive this tremendous homecoming and no one even met us when we returned. And when I finished, it seemed as though God simply said to me, but you're not home yet. And there are rewards for faithfulness but not necessarily down here. The I is for invest. Invest in people. Do you realize that if you invest $25 a week starting at, at age 25, in over 40 years, that modest investment will return over a million dollars at retirement? The, the miracle of compound interest, students, is that an investment typically doubles every seven years. And I'm here to tell you that people are the greatest investment of all. As a young minister, I sought advice and, and cultivated relationships 
with some great godly gentlemen who were veterans in ministry. I, I gained a lot from getting to know older mentors like George Mark Elliott, Alva Sizemore, Glenn Wheeler, Edwin Hayden. I remember as a Bible college student taking Edwin Hayden out for a, a fancy lunch at Roy Rogers there by West High on, on Glenway Avenue. It's the equivalent of today having a fine dining experience at, at Arby's. And he gave me some wise advice that day. And it was investment advice that I've never forgotten. As we ate our roast beef sandwiches, he said, Jeff, invest your life in people. People are the greatest investment. And I couldn't agree more. And I'm grateful for the reminder that he gave me that day more than 40 years ago. So P, prepare. O, obey. I, invest. S, serve. Serve others ahead of yourself. There can be a tendency for us to think about our needs, our wants, our wishes, our preferences. Me, 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 me. And I want to challenge our graduates to think about others ahead of yourself. A university professor tells of being invited to speak at a military base one December, and they're meeting an unforgettable soldier named Ralph. Ralph had been sent to meet him at the airport, and they introduced themselves, headed toward the baggage claim. As they walked down the concourse, Ralph kept disappearing, once to help an older woman whose suitcase had fallen open, once to lift two toddlers up so they could see the Santa Claus there at the airport, stopped another time to give directions to someone who was lost. And each time he came back with a big smile on his face. Where did you learn that? The professor asked. What? Ralph said. Where did you learn to live like that? Oh, Ralph said, I, I guess during the war. He told about his tour of duty in Vietnam and how it was his job to clear minefields and he watched his friends blow up before his eyes one after another. And he said, I learned to live between steps. I never knew whether the next step would be my last. So I learned to get everything I could out of the moment between when I picked up my foot and when I put it down again. Every step I took was a whole new world. And I guess... I've been that way ever since. The abundance of our lives is not determined by how long we live, but by how well we live. Next is the E for eternity. It says in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that God has placed eternity in our hearts. We were intended to live forever not to age, not to decline, not to die, as, as that passage described. God's original plan in the Garden of Eden was that we would live healthy forever. And I think that's part of what it means when it says he has set eternity in our hearts. There is this innate longing drilled deeply into our DNA. Have you ever thought, what do I want on my tombstone? I don't mean the old 
commercial talking about what pizza toppings you, you would like, but how would you encapsulate your life on your tombstone? I heard the joke about the hypochondriac who had engraved on her tombstone, see, I told you I was sick. James Dobson's father said if he could select his epitaph, he would inscribe, he prayed. I think I would choose, he loved God, he loved his family, he loved people. And our, our graduates are now ready to chisel the dash between the dates on their tombstones, to define their lives by their actions, their choices, their behavior, by their contributions. And here at the end of Ecclesiastes, the, the last part of this 12th chapter, Solomon takes inventory on his life, the ups and downs, the success, the, the failure. And this is what he said, verse 13. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of all mankind. At the end of your life, make sure that you're living with that priority. What about with you today? Do you know without any uncertainty that your life is right with the Lord? That you're investing your life and influence in eternal things? That you are pointing others to the things that matter eternally. Do your good friends know about your best friend? And whatever your age today, we all need to work together bringing in the harvest and building the kingdom. I want to finish strong and, and not become a crash and burn statistic. I want to go to heaven when I die and, and take as many people with me as possible. When I get to that wonderful city and the saints all around me appear, I want to have somebody tell me it was you who invited me here. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Would you pray with me?